Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we study through certain sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian pastor-preacher so much owned of God in making known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this week we've been reading from Sermon 38 to 44, and you've got a couple of double numbers in there. That is one sermon with uh, two slots, as it were, in the sequence. And one of those is the sermon that we're looking at today. It's Sermon 41, 42, and it's entitled Election, and it was preached on September the 2nd, 1855 in Southwark. It's an interesting sermon on a number of levels. If you've been reading along, you may recall that Spurgeon's assertion uh, a few weeks ago was that election is a doctrine that can and should be preached both to saints and to sinners, that it's something that is of value to all. Now, whether or not this is a deliberate object lesson, uh, I couldn't say. It's interesting, though, that it's... uh, in, in common with some other such what you might call doctrinal sermons that he's preaching, touching on critical topics. It's an interesting sermon for a number of reasons, not least because of its subject matter, but also because of the way Spurgeon handles it. These uh, double-numbered sermons tend to be slightly longer, and uh, we'll see perhaps why that's so, especially when we look at the references that Spurgeon uses. Uh, But also there are things that he says that might surprise you. There are angles of attack which might uh, take you by surprise. Uh, It's altogether uh, an instructive sermon on a number of levels. Gives us an insight into some of Spurgeon's thinking on various issues. The topic, uh, sorry, the text for the sermon is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Spurgeon is preaching in a context in which the doctrine of election is going to be assaulted from two angles. On the one hand, there's the Arminian assault, where the doctrine of election is going to be cried down and dismissed as some assault, perhaps, upon the free will of man. On the other side is the hyper-Calvinistic assault, in which uh, election becomes, as you'll see as Spurgeon handles it, Uh, Election becomes an excuse for men to do nothing and for preachers to do nothing in preaching the gospel uh, with an eye to sinners. So Spurgeon begins by emphasizing that if this were the only text uh, in the word of God, we should be bound to receive and acknowledge the truthfulness of the great and glorious doctrine of God's ancient choice of his family. As far as he's concerned, election is clear enough from this text alone that if this were all the Bible you had, you would at least be sure of election. And yet, he says, in many of our pulpits, it would be reckoned a high sin and treason to preach a sermon upon election because they could not make it what they call a practical discourse. 
And he says, I believe they have erred from the truth therein. So we're going to have a model here of how to preach a doctrinal sermon that is practical. Uh, we shouldn't set those two things against each other. And he pleads with his hearers to lay aside their prejudices, to listen calmly and dispassionately, that is without bias, to hear what scripture says. We must preach with the Bible above our heads, subject to the word of God. And so he's going to handle this text, demonstrating, first of all, the truthfulness of the doctrine, then that the election is absolute, not for sanctification, but through sanctification of the spirit and for the truth and belief of the truth. Third, this election is eternal. Fourth, it is personal and then the effects of the doctrine and its tendencies. Now, that's already quite a complex uh, outline for Spurgeon. Uh, by the time you get down to the end, he's in his fifth lease and his sixth lease, which is quite distinct for him. Typically, his headings tend to be uh, fewer in number. But let's go with him. First, I must try and prove, he says, that the doctrine is true. And he's going to begin with an argumentum ad hominem. He's going to speak to each man. I will speak to you according to your different positions and stations. And so he begins by talking to those who belong to the Church of England. And he refers to the articles of the Anglican Church, the 17th upon predestination and election. And he says, if you're a churchman, and a sincere and honest believer in Mother Church, you must be a thorough believer in election. And then going on this line, he begins to adduce other human authorities, as he calls them, the old Valdensian creed. Uh, it's no novelty, he says then, that I'm preaching, no new doctrine. He gives an extra extract from the Old Baptist Confession, the 1677-1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, he says, when he puts alongside one another the uh, articles of the Church of England, the Valdensian Confession and the Baptist Confession, uh, I don't give a rush for all three of them. He says, it doesn't really matter to me whether or not they are for or against this doctrine. But I want you to understand that these documents demonstrate that the uh, this conviction regarding election is not a novelty. It is backed up by antiquity. And he says we need to remember that we're not just standing alone, isolated in the present, that there's a great host from the past who have testified to the same truths to which we are testifying. But, he says, the great truth is always the Bible and the Bible alone. My hearers, you do not believe in any other book than the Bible, do you? Now, bear in mind, Spurgeon has just published uh, a, an edition of the 1689 Confession. So uh, he's clearly uh, willing to embrace it and to use it, but he wants to emphasize that doctrine is found primarily in the scriptures and it is to the word of God alone that we give the first place in deciding such questions as these. And so he says, I love to give you a whole volley of texts when I am afraid you will distrust the truth so that you may be too astonished to doubt if you do not in reality believe. And that's interesting. He says, I love to do this 
But I think if you've read through the sermons that have been in the first volume so far, you would say he doesn't actually do it that often. Well, bear in mind, first of all, that you don't have all the sermons that he has preached. And secondly, that he very often refers to texts and quotes them either in part or in the spirit of them, even when he doesn't necessarily give you a precise reference to them. But because he's fighting this battle in this way, he gives you this whole volley, running through a catalogue of passages, first of all, where the people of God are called elect. And so from Mark 13 and from Luke 18, for example, he says, this is where the people of God are referred to as his chosen ones. Almost, a, if you like, a passive sense of the idea of election. He says, well, you've got concordances. You can go away and see throughout the epistles that the saints are constantly called the elect. You can look for it for yourselves. But now the verses that will positive prove the doctrine. And if you like, this is the more active sense. It is a deliberate and definite divine choosing of some. And he turns to John 15 and verse 16 and to Acts 13 and verse 48 and to Romans chapter 8. And he turns to Romans chapter 11 and he turns to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and he turns to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and verse 9. And he says, what are you going to do with all of these texts which demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that God chooses a people for himself? In the middle of that paragraph, he says, it would be unnecessary to repeat the whole of the ninth chapter of Romans. As long as that remains in the Bible, no man shall be able to prove Arminianism. So he's got this battery, this barrage of texts. And perhaps that's where you understand why this sermon took longer to preach. Because if you either are a preacher or have heard a preacher who's felt that this is the right thing to do in a certain sermon, you'll appreciate that having the people turn to a text after text after text and making sure that they're reading it and seeing what's in it can take up quite a lot of time. And before he moves on, he wants to address those who say it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. Uh, almost it's 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 hard it's not fair that's that's pretty cruel of god to deal with the world in that way and his response to that is really to go after the souls of those who might ask that question is there any of you here this morning he asks who wishes to be holy who wishes to be regenerate to leave off sin and walk in holiness someone might say yes another says no i don't want to be holy I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. I want my sinful pleasures. Why then, says Spurgeon, would you grumble that God hasn't chosen you to holiness? If you were chosen, you wouldn't like it. It's, it's an interesting way of turning this back uh, upon those who challenge. For example, he says um, about someone who declares that I hate the preacher. I can't bear his doctrine, but still I, I wish I could go into the church. Well, he said that, that would be a nonsense. That man doesn't care for it. Why should he trouble himself about other people having what they value and he despises? And so he, he asks, if you don't like holiness and you don't like righteousness, if God has chosen you to those things, has chosen rather the preacher to those things, has he hurt you by it? 
You see, the the idea that Spurgeon is addressing here, the challenge that he's issuing, is the person who perhaps uses the doctrine of election as an excuse not to consider the gospel, but actually is quite happy to go on in ungodliness. And then uh, the the question uh, arises further that but but I thought it just meant that God chooses some to heaven and some to hell. Ah, says Spurgeon, that's a very different matter from the gospel doctrine. God elects men to holiness and to righteousness and through that to heaven. So he's being very careful here to make sure that people realize some of the richness that is in this doctrine of election, that it's not some a capricious absolutism whereby someone is just sort of plucked up. You're for heaven and you're for hell. But that God chooses people to come to Christ and to walk in godliness and then to come to heaven. And that is all bound up together. So he's stripping away the excuses that some make of the doctrine of election. That's his first point, And it's uh, the longest, really, of them all. The doctrine is true. His second point is that the doctrine of election is absolute. That is, it does not depend upon what we are. What he's saying here is that God doesn't choose us because we are holy beforehand or because we will become holy afterwards. He chooses us in order that we may be holy. In that sense, it does not rest upon our own works. It is not something that is determined on account of our righteousness, our virtue. Election, he says, is we are sure, is absolute and altogether apart from the virtues which the saints have afterwards. What though a saint should be as holy and devout as Paul? What though he should be as bold as Peter or as loving as John? Yet he would claim nothing from his maker. So God does not foresee holiness and choose accordingly. God's choice is sovereign. We have nothing to recommend us to God and never had and never will in ourselves apart from his grace and goodness toward us. And so, says Spurgeon, I will be content to be saved by grace, unalloyed, pure grace. I can boast of no merits. If you can do so, I cannot. He says, I must sing, free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affection and held my soul fast. So it's absolute. But furthermore, thirdly, this election is eternal. Now, I'm going to skip over a little bit this fascinating comment that he makes uh, about the thousands of years before Adam came upon the earth when God was preparing chaotic matter to make it a fit abode for man, putting races of creatures upon it who might die and leave behind the marks of his handiwork and marvellous skill before he tried his hand on man. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't imagine that Spurgeon's saying that God tried out his creating power on a few botched jobs before he made man. But this is not. Uh, and Spurgeon does veer back and forth a little bit on this. He's not always clear, uh, at least from my reading, on the, the doctrine of creation. Uh, and his point here, though, is not first and foremost about when God made or how God made, but to carry us back before creation uh, to the 
the time when there was no one and nothing but God himself. And his point here is that it was in this beginning when God himself was alone God and when there was nothing more that God himself alone in his eternity chose a people to be his own. And he's just saying, I'm just running this over for the benefit of young believers that they may understand what we mean by eternal, absolute election. It comes alone and only from God. Furthermore, election is personal. And he's answering an objection here that uh, the election spoken of is national rather than individual or personal. But in the text he's using, God hath from the beginning chosen you. And he says, God chooses persons. God chooses individuals. If he chooses uh, from amongst Britain, then he chooses actually a little more than that. If you were to claim that God has chosen Britain as a whole, then he must choose each British man individually. That's the way Spurgeon is arguing this. Uh, now, he's not suggesting that Britain is a chosen nation, but he's saying if it were, it would be because each individual Brit has been chosen. The point he's making is that that's not the way then that God deals. Election is personal. It must be so. God speaks in his word of people one by one having been the special subjects of election. The other thought, he says, election produces good results. And he's really galloping along at this point. Uh, you may be left with some questions. He's trying to cover a lot of ground. He says here, in essence, that election is election unto life and sanctification. You are not to think that you are elect unless you are holy. You may come to Christ as a sinner, but you may not come to Christ as an elect person until you can see your holiness. Now, you've got to get him the right way around here because that's not the clearest statement. His point isn't that you have to be holy in order to come to Jesus. He's already made clear that that is not the case. His point is that you have no grounds for concluding that you are chosen of God unless you are demonstrating it by a holy life. The elect of God are holy. They are not pure. They are not perfect. They are not spotless. But taking their life as a whole, they are holy persons. They are marked and distinct from others, and no man has a right to conclude himself elect except in his holiness. And so you can't say, I am elect, or I believe I'm elect, or I'm confident I'm elect, if you are consistently indulging sin of which you do not care to repent. If you're just going on in your wickedness, then you are not one of God's chosen people. Because God chooses men and women, boys and girls, says Spurgeon, unto sanctification and unto faith. So there's this holiness that goes along with faith and it may be known and it may be known for a certainty. Faith is the, if, if you will, the foundation of this. It is the hand that reaches out and lays hold upon Jesus Christ and whoever believes is elect. And those who, being elect, 
have believed, and the belief is the proof of the election, they will go on in godliness. So Spurgeon wants to hear, put away the possibility that you can live in sin and claim to be elect. But he also wants to emphasize that what you need to do is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, because faith demonstrates that you are chosen beforehand. He says, don't put the cart before the horse. If you will cast yourself on Jesus, you're elect. I tell you, the chief of sinners this morning, I tell you in his name, if you will come to God without any works of your own, cast yourself on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you will come now and trust in him, you are elect. You were loved of God from before the foundation of the world, for you could not do that unless God had given you the power and had chosen you to do it. You see how he's arguing here, saying don't make election the question. Christ is held out to you. He also says, don't fancy that election excuses sin. Do not rock yourself in sweet complacency in the thought of your irresponsibility. You are responsible. And then very briefly, sixthly, lastly, the true and legitimate tendencies of right conceptions concerning the doctrine of election. He says, first of all, it's a stripping doctrine. It takes away all our own righteousness. It strips us naked of our imagined virtuous works and doings. It makes us realize that we, we need God and that God must love us despite our sins. Secondly, it is humbling. Nothing in us, all of God. And we cry out, why me? Why me? If you want to be humbled, he says, study election, for it will make you humble under the influence of God's spirit. And then last here, election in the Christian should make him very fearless and very bold. If God has chosen you, why should you care what man might think of you? You can go about your business for God as an oaken Christian who can withstand the storm. Furthermore, election will make us holy. That, again, would have been much controverted by some. They would have said, if you think you're elect, you'll go on in sin. No, that's the devil's logic. Shall I sin, says a Christian, after God hath chosen me? Shall I transgress after such love? Knowing that God has chosen us, binds us to him. And then, lastly, what does election say to the ungodly? Spurgeon says, and this might surprise some, it's the most encouraging thing you can think of. What? How can election encourage the sinner? Because it means there's hope. Because it means that the salvation of your soul doesn't actually depend on what you are and what you have done. For very often the devil will try and persuade a sinner that they are too bad to be saved. Having tried to perhaps first of all tell them that they don't need to be saved, sometimes he then says, as they begin to come under conviction of sin, well now clearly you're too bad to be saved. He's doing everything that he can to separate the sinner from Jesus Christ. But no, says Spurgeon, this is an election of a number that cannot be numbered, of an innumerable host. There's, there's hope here, there's joy, there's power, there's glory for God. Take heart, go and try the master. Cast yourself upon Christ, says Spurgeon, and prove him. 
If you go to him, if you ask him, you shall receive. He has never spurned someone yet. Is not that hope for you? What though there is an allotted number, he asks, yet it is true that all who seek belong to that number. And so he ends this sermon by pointing to Christ. Let your hope rest on the cross of Christ. Think not on election, but on Christ Jesus. Rest on Jesus, Jesus first, midst and without end. Now, we also are running out of time, having considered all of these things. What are we to say to to Spurgeon on this topic? I'll be honest, I don't think it's his finest doctrinal sermon. I think he's shooting from the hip a little bit. It's interesting too, though, that this is one of the sermons that he says has been God's means of saving some or even many. And therefore we need to step back and perhaps ask ourselves, first of all, do I preach every portion of God's word? Have I perhaps become persuaded as Spurgeon said, should not be the case in an earlier sermon, that election is not a practical topic, that it doesn't have anything to say either to the saint or particularly perhaps to the sinner. Here Spurgeon's tried to do quite a lot in a fairly short span. He's tried to demonstrate from antiquity and primarily from scripture that the doctrine is true, that we're not novel in holding fast to the doctrine of God's sovereign choice of people. He's shown us that it's absolute, that it depends upon God's choice and not upon us. He's demonstrated that it is eternal from before the foundation of the earth, that it's personal or individual, that it invariably produces good results, producing holiness, not just this sort of scant and bear, uh, you're for heaven and you're for hell. It brings us to Christ and then having vivified us in him, made us alive in him. It produces holiness in us by the inward working of the spirit. It strips us of our own righteousness. It humbles us absolutely. It makes us fearless and bold. It provokes us to holiness and it calls with hope to the unconverted man or woman that if God chooses sinners, that there is no reason then why you should not come to this Christ with the confidence that if you are calling upon him, he will receive you. And in doing so, you will be shown to be one of his chosen ones. Fascinating sermon, fascinating survey of the scriptures and the doctrine, striking at a number of different targets. It's an interesting approach and it's one which God was pleased to bless. It provokes certain questions for us about how we handle such a doctrine as this, whether we're prepared to do so, and whether or not we do so in a way that is designed to exalt God and to humble man. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.